trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I trust that you're having a marvelous day and you are fully ready to engage in some wrong think. I know it sounds really subversive, but actually, this is what responsible people do. People who are willing to take uh, responsibility for their own lives, people who are willing to claim, use, and defend their natural rights. You got to be willing to question the uh, prevailing narratives, you got to be willing to, to call out the conventional wisdom on occasion. And yeah, I'll admit, uh, there are times where it's going to feel pretty lonely because a lot of the public just simply doesn't want to do that. It's okay. That's all right. Finding the power to make your feet uh, move, you know, without uh, waiting for permission to do so, that's part of being free as well. Got some great things to cover in this hour. Uh, One of the things I wanted to share with you um, is coming up in the back half of the hour, we're going to be talking with um, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College, one of the sponsors of this program, and I hope that you will listen as we talk about the new economy. There's a lot of shifts that have taken place economically, uh, pretty dramatic stuff, especially in the last year, but not all of it's bad news. If you want to hear about the new economy, about the skills, the kind of education needed to prosper in the midst of all the changes... I think you're going to find this really useful. Right now, I want to start off with changing how we see the state. That's an essential part of claiming, using, and defending your natural rights. Of course, it's easier said than done because a vast majority of people have been conditioned to see the state as kind of a combination of God and parent in their lives. I came across an article from Sheldon Richmond about uh, what the state really is, which More than anything, this helps make the case of why we should be minimizing its influence in our lives. Sheldon Richmond writes, To better understand the nature of government, one can think of it as an agency that sells or, more precisely, rents power to others. The greater the power and the wider its scope, the more opportunities the state's agents will have to sell access to it in return for favors. Now, of course, the demand for that power will also be greater. This stands to reason. If the government's allowed to make many important decisions about private activity, people will want to influence or control that decision-making. And they'll be willing to pay for that influence as long as the price is less than the expected payoff. In other words, the supply of government power creates its own demand. This answers the concern over the corrupting influence of money in politics. If government has nothing to sell, no one will be trying to buy Now, he says, this is not to say that all government officials do is rent out power. Many activities can be attributed to their own agendas. Like all people, they are prone to various incentives and foibles that lead them to do things that others who are affected either do not like or approve only because they can't imagine an alternative. So the motives of state agents can vary. Self-regard and paternalism, for two examples... Motives can be tricky to identify. A good deal of self-deception can always be involved, and words often part ways with the truth. Nevertheless, he says, much of what state agents do constitutes, in effect, the renting out of power to well-connected private interests. Now, the renting out of power can also have various motives. 
Power may be used to benefit special interests as a way to garner political support, financial and otherwise. Campaign finance is the most obvious example, though many more subtle ways also exist. And again, the motive for renting power to special interests could also have paternalistic powers. Politicians could erroneously figure that for the good of all, certain people ought to have access to power that no one else has. Motives, of course, tell you nothing about the morality or effectiveness of any particular action. So Sheldon Richmond says private interests that pay to get their hands on power can have various various motives also, but he says, I would guess that most of the time that motive is going to be self-regard. Now, he says, I should note that I'm using the term rent idiosyncratically. Uh, Economists use the term rent-seeking to label the private pursuit of returns through government favors. So by that, they mean that private interests seek returns on investment that exceed what they would earn in the market without power being exercised on their behalf. He says, in his case, I'm using rent in the colloquial sense in which people pay to use something, in this case, without acquiring ownership. Now, he says, it's easy to think of examples of what I've been saying here. When a business firm lobbies for a tariff or an import quota, they are seeking higher prices and profits through the state's power to burden foreign competitors with taxes and import limits. Likewise, when firms seek licenses, subsidies, and other political favors, they grab for advantages that their competitors don't have. Similarly, complicated financial regulations that burden smaller and potential upstart competitors are likely to be welcomed, if not written, by large dominant institutions. And when things go bust, uninformed people will readily blame the private firms without seeing the state's essential culpability. By the way, he has a link to an article in there called Wall Street Couldn't Have Done It Alone. Well worth your time. Sheldon Richmond says another source of market extra or extra market advantage is government contracting. Why should a firm take chances in an uncertain marketplace with fickle consumers if it can obtain guarantees by selling things to government agencies? Military contractors come to mind immediately. Billions of dollars of taxpayer money go to such companies every year. Private companies can't tax anyone, but government con- contractors, in effect, can do just that. The more powerful the state, the more possibilities exist for favoritism. And he says, notice that favoritism breeds dependence on and support for the state. So for obvious reasons, military contractors are unlikely to be convinced by arguments for a non-interventionist foreign policy. Likewise, companies that rely on tariffs and import quotas probably won't find inspiration in the great British free traders Richard Cobden and John Bright. But Sheldon Richmond says understanding the state is the first step toward rethinking the state, which is necessary for changing one's view about its value. If people think the government is nothing more than a well-intended social service agency, the organizer of a huge and benevolent mutual aid society, well, their attitude will be favorable overall, even if they dislike some of what the state does. But he says if people come to see that the state exists to amass power and private resources in large part to distribute it to special interests, the majority who are victims might begin to object and demand change. Boy, is that the truth. That's, uh, and that's the key. Once you realize that, hey, <laughs> this is, this is uh, not operating in our interest, it's hard to go back to seeing it as, oh, it's, it's my protector, my friend, my, the one who hugs me. Okay, well, puts me in a straitjacket, but still, 
hugs me. I want to share a, an article here from Caitlin Johnstone. I look. I'm a political agnostic. I try to persuade people. Hey, it's it, I, I can help you cast out your political demons. You know, if we need to perform an exorcism, and some people are politically possessed. I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but I bet you you could probably think of a few people who are really decent, rational, normal folks until the topic of politics comes up, and then they morph into something that's very aggressive. And very demeaning. And that's, uh, that's a little bit spooky. Caitlin Johnstone has a great article, which I will link to in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, about how mainstream politics offers voters the illusion of change without ever risking any kind of substantive change that would actually decentralize its control or power. The headline is, Mainstream Politics Offer Pretend Revolutions to a Discontented Public. If you've been caught up in all the presidential stuff, this is probably worth your time. She says, in 2008, the American public was fed up with the disastrous status quo politics of George W. Bush. So they came together and elected a progressive candidate who campaigned on hope and change to replace him. But no progress happened. The hope and change never came. Barack Obama continued and expanded all his predecessors' most depraved policies at home and abroad, and it wasn't long before the initial elation wore off and the illusion that things were looking up evaporated. In other words, it was like Bush never left office. Worn out and disgusted by crushing neoliberal policies at home and murderous neoconservative policies abroad, Americans elected a political neophyte who ran on a populist platform which criticized both Bush and Obama. Trump promised to drain the swamp, end the wars, fight the establishment in the interests of the ordinary people. This time, for sure, there would be change. But the wars kept going, and the swamp got fuller, and the U.S. empire kept chugging along on the same trajectory it had been on during the Bush administration and the Obama administration. She says, despite all this, the Democratic Party and its allied media institutions acted as though some drastic deviation from the norm had taken place, insisting the U.S. had been plunged from a free democracy respected around the world into an isolationist, fascist utopia. Or dystopia, rather. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to come back to this in just a few moments. She has a point worth considering here. And that is, you were given the appearance that, oh, it's all changed. By the way, we're given the same thing in the 2020 (coughs) election. Nothing changed. The power is still being abused, just as it always was. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So again, I'm sharing this article from Caitlin Johnstone. Mainstream politics offer pretend revolutions to a discontented public. And I think she's accurately portraying what happened, not only in the 2008 election that saw Barack Obama come to power, but the 2016 election that saw Trump come to power. She says, in order to stop fascism, we were told the American people had yet another American's up, another people's uprising against the corrupt status quo and elected, I'm going to put that in air quotes, uh, Obama's vice president. Lifelong corporate crony and empire lackey Joe Biden now sits in the White House advancing all the same murderous, oppressive, exploitative, authoritarian policies as his predecessors 
as a result of the latest fake decoy revolution against tyranny. She says, and that's all mainstream electoral politics ever is in the U.S. empire. It's a fake decoy revolution staged for the public every few years, so they don't have a real one. It's kind of a pressure relief valve, I guess you could say. A symbolic ceremony where the public pretends to cast the abusive status quo into the sea so they feel like the battle against their oppressors has been won. And then their oppressors just keep right on oppressing them. Caitlin Johnstone says every few years the public gets to choose between two reliable lackeys of the oligarchic empire and then all of the evils of that empire get pinned upon the winner. The public then directs their rage at the lackey rather than the actual power structure that's been oppressing them after which they have another election to rid themselves of the scoundrel once and for all. They hug, they cry, they celebrate, and the oppression machine continues completely uninterrupted. She actually uses a quote here from Gore Vidal, who said, It doesn't actually make any difference whether the president is Republican or Democrat. The genius of the American ruling class is that it has been able to make the people think they've had something to do with electing the presidents of two, for 200 years, when they've had absolutely nothing to say about the candidates or the policies or the way the countries run. A very small group controls just about everything. End quote. Caitlin Johnstone says that small group is the plutocratic class whose legalized bribery and propaganda machine has immense influence over U.S. politics, as well as the imperial war machine and special interest groups with whom the plutocratic class is allied. She says it's necessary to form coalitions of support within that power cluster if one wants to become president in the managed democracy that is the United States. And no part of that power cluster is going to support a president who won't reliably advance the interests of the oligarchic empire. Great article. There's a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I love her last line here. She says, what's needed is for the people to awaken to the truth. An entire empire is built upon a pair of closed eyelids. So if you want to free yourself, it's got to start at the individual level. And that starts with an expansion of your awareness, whether you're talking about the consequences of one's addiction leading to getting them sober, or an expansion of awareness of uh, you know, injustice leading to you know, correcting those problems. Making people aware that the mass media are lying to us about what's real. Making them aware of the horrors of war and interventionism. Aware of the underlying dynamics of injustice that are grinding everyday Americans into the dirt. That can lead to the chain reactive, reaction rather, which sees people using the power of its numbers to shrug off the chains of oppression. Probably something worth considering. All right, one final note here wanted to share with you this article from Anders Koskinen about how our culture has been shaken but not stirred by big tech. He says, as big tech continues to infiltrate the American media production, its woke corporate claws sink deeper into Hollywood, infecting beloved media franchises as they go. And here's the example. Amazon's acquisition of MGM Holdings, Inc., it's the latest move in this process, and it's a change that will decelerate, or accelerate rather, the decline of the American culture. Surprisingly, Amazon's looming presence it poses a threat that even members of creative Hollywood elite say they're concerned about. Americans have likely gotten used to Jeff Bezos' expansionist empire gobbling up other enterprises like the Washington Post, Audible, and Twitch, to name a few. But the purchase of the nearly 100-year-old film studio, MGM, 
and its intellectual property presents new opportunities for a coordinated redressing of beloved media franchises to fit a new cultural narrative. Even writers deeply entrenched in Hollywood's den of leftism are casting wary glances at this new purchase. Waiting for the, uh, writing for the New York Times, John Logan, a scriptwriter for Gladiator and the James Bond film Skyfall, among others, fears an overactive Amazon and its profit-hungry focus groups might strip the world's most famous spy of his martinis, penchant for violence or English accent. Corporate partners come and go, but James Bond endures, write Lo- writes Logan. Now, Logan's fear of corporate oversight quashing the creative freedoms of artists may be off target against the backdrop of contemporary American culture. His primary concern seems to be that big corporations, driven by profit, will insist on material that makes for good sequels, sequels rather, or which, uh, or else which can be diluted to be generally inoffensive. So Logan shouldn't fear for the death of James Bond's famous martini, shaken not stirred, if only because Amazon will want to continue to profit from product placements in James Bond films, solicited from vodka, gin, and vermouth companies. So it's far more likely that Amazon will insist on the very changes that Logan fears they will quash because those changes promote the moral freefall today's culture promotes. For instance, Logan discusses how he and director Sam Mendes planned a scene in Skyfall. Quote, Now the moment 007 first encounters his arch nemesis is often the iconic moment in a Bond movie, the scene around which you build a lot of the narrative and cinematic rhythms. Think about Bond's first meeting of Dr. No or Goldfinger or Blofeld, all classic scenes in the franchise. Well, Sam and I boldly announced we wanted to do this pivotal scene as a homoerotic seduction, end quote. Now, Anders Koskinen says, look, at present, such things as a homoerotic seduction are no longer considered controversial in American culture. Save the possible objection by the LGBT movement that this homoeroticism is coming from the film's villain rather than the hero. Neither big tech nor Hollywood has shown hesitation to push the boundaries of socially acceptable content in film and television as of late. From the famously adult content of HBO's Game of Thrones, Netflix Netflix placement of homosexual couples in children's cartoons, and Amazon's hiring of an intimacy coordinator for their upcoming Lord of the Rings series on their prime streaming service, big tech is heavily invested in pushing their own version of morality via the production of cultural content. And Anders Koskinen says these cultural infiltrations by the deep-pocketed progressives of Silicon Valley and the tech industry writ large are what Keith Preston dubs rainbow capitalism in a recent piece for Chronicles. This conjunction of what we used to call big business and progressive politics has happened in large part because men like Bezos and Zuckerberg and a host of others recognize that their long-term interests are best served by the complete deracination and demoralization of the American people, Preston writes. Logan should not fear an end of his ability to write self-proclaimed controversy into beloved media franchises such as James Bond. After all, the next spy to take up the 007 codename is set to be a woman. Rather, as Preston alludes to, it's far more likely that Amazon and other large corporations will insist on what Logan believes to be controversial precisely because the goal is to embed such ideas so deeply in the American psyche as to render them uncontroversial. Virtually all cultural, demographic, generational, economic, political, and technological trends currently favor the left, Logan says. Opinion polls, to the degree that these can be believed, indicate the public opinion is moving leftward on virtually every contentious social issue, particularly among young people. 
The traditional media, cable networks, and social media combine to provide the cultural left with a propaganda apparatus that's nearly all-encompassing and strengthened by the left's domination of virtually all ideas, industries, and professions, from education to advertising to law to human resources. So it's not the fear of poorly made sequels that should cause concern about Amazon's acquisition of MGM or Disney's acquisition of 20th Century Fox. Anders Koskinen says, it's the fact that this consolidation gives ever fewer men and women complete control over larger swaths of the American cultural landscape, and it gives them the power to terraform it to their preferred climate. Sounds like something you and I should be aware of and maybe fortifying ourselves against. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. You have heard me talk about the great sponsors of this show, including MonticelloCollege.org. And I'm very happy to welcome the president and founder of Monticello College, Shannon Brooks, here with me. Uh, Dr. Brooks, good to catch up with you once again. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? Fantastic. I know that you are a busy guy. And, and when I say that, it's not just, yeah, you know, Shannon's a workaholic. I mean, you are engaged in good stuff from sunup to sundown. I seem to remember you telling me once upon a time, sleep is really overrated. And now you're doing everything in your power to prove that with, with what you're doing with your life. For the sake of people who are meeting you via this program for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Sure. Um, having spent years under the tutelage of of the, of the likes of Cleon Skousen and Reverend Don Sills, Bill Doty and such, um, really got involved uh, heavily with All Over the Mill years and years and years ago. We started one college and we started a new one here uh, about 10 years ago, Monticello College here in Monticello, Utah. And um, really trying to look at higher education from the perspective of what, rather than, than you know, meet the needs of higher education, how about meeting the needs of the students? And so we've created a program, which is a pretty strong liberal arts program on a on an 80 acre farm here in southeastern Utah. So that's, that's pretty much what we're doing. It's and, and I'm, I'm going to just take a moment here to kind of share some personal testimony of, look, there is nothing as life changing as as a person really digging into a classical liberal arts education. And it's not because it's going to make you the smartest person in the room. It's about helping to to knock off the rough corners and polish your personal character to help you personally become a better version of yourself than you were before. And and since I was introduced to this, I have found it to be a lot of hard work. I've also found it to be extremely rewarding. Everything in my life has changed for the better and taken on deeper meaning because of that approach. And I want to tell you, you are one of the, the instrumental people in helping introduce me to that idea and, and helping mentor me into that process. Now, you are here today to talk about something that's going on that uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to identify with and relate to, maybe not because they want to, but because they're going to see the necessity. Let's talk about the new economy. And, and I don't yeah. mean in the sense that, uh, you know, some politician is getting up saying, hey, we're going to have a new economy. Talk to me about the reality of what's happening economically around us. Yeah, so for the last 10 years or so, we've been looking at a phenomenon that's happening with college graduates and college students, and that is... Um, uh, the fact that they have a difficult time finding jobs when, when they get out of college and that they are burdened, and I mean burdened, by student debt. Um, some of these kids are anywhere from fifty dollars to uh, $200,000 of debt, 
And, you know, to a 20-something, that you might as well just put a gun to their head and pull the trigger because they can't not visualize how to get out of that, right? So over the last 10 years, we've, or really the last 15 years, we said, how, how can we create a, a, a higher education environment that, that keeps them from getting into this debt and solves the problem of employment or income uh, producing endeavors after education, uh, after, after their, their collegiate experience is over. And that's what we've come up with here at, at Monticello College is what we call the new economy. So basically it means you get a really great liberal arts education. Um, you learn how to build a house without debt. And all, we'll, we'll go into detail on all these. You learn how to grow your own food. You learn how to live off grid if you desire to do that. And you learn how to start your own business that is producing enough to, uh, to, to maintain a, a good uh, standard of living. And that's, that's what our program is about. Okay, now I want to address a concern that I know some people are going to go right to, and that is, well, now, is this a way of turning your back on society and essentially, you know, uh, melting away into the hills to become one of the hill people, you know, very self-sufficient, but I don't want nothing to do with your modern world? Um, I don't think that's the goal, is it? No, no, no. In fact, um, we're working with, with a number of different parties, but we're trying to set up a scenario where we kind of bring back homesteading on the fringe. What that means is there's a bunch of federal land here in the state of Utah, for example, that is on the, the, the city limits or right at the city limits of a number of small towns and cities here in Monticello, <clears throat> in Utah, rather. And we're trying to, to, to create a scenario where we can get that land back from the federal government, turn it over to these young people, 10, 20, 30 acres um, that's on the right on the the, uh, the 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 boundary of a city or a town. So they're not off in a hill somewhere. They're right at the edge of town um, where farming and stuff has to happen. Um, but they're able to do that. And then with all the skills we're giving them, they can set up businesses and farms, which we anticipate will be become the centers of farmers markets, will become the centers of, of bringing school kids out to learn how to blacksmith and how to do all these different things that our students are learning how to do. Um, but not not away from society, but on the edge of society so that they can then have an influence but have the, the room they need to, to grow and do what they do. And there are some pretty interesting things taking place right around us right now. Um, I think about a couple of ransomware incidents within the last couple of weeks. One of them shut down a very major gasoline pipeline to a lot of the East Coast. And I know that there were you know official people saying, now don't panic, there's no gas shortage. But guess what? There was a gas shortage. <laughs> there were yeah. people lining up and there were gas stations out of fuel. And, and, and we're we're already nervous from you know the the pandemic response and all the stuff that's going on there's a lot of instability now the meat packers apparently have had you know some ransomware and so the the point here is not therefore we should all be fearful it's just to recognize there are some pretty unique threats developing and there are some some sources of instability in this world that can keep people preoccupied from from actually using what influence they have in their lives more effectively. What I hear, Shannon, is you're you're talking about people becoming self sufficient enough and and innovative enough and and able to adapt that they will continue to be able to exercise their influence effectively, no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing, because they know those basic needs can be taken care of. That, that that's right. Look, let me talk about this in in terms of means of production. When when you and I earn money, Brian. We, buy, we earn money for one purpose, and that is to acquire commodities. And what we're saying is that to the degree that you can establish your own commodities, grow them or produce them yourself, 
that is a level of self-reliance. It's not saying you want to go out in the hills. It's saying, I want to be more stable. I don't want to be at the, at the uh, mercy of some, you know, grapes coming from Chile. I'd rather just grow the grapes here myself and harvest my grapes and eat my grapes. Um, and you, you can do that right smack dab in the middle of a city. You don't have to be, uh, you know, out in the hills somewhere, uh, you know, smoking the, the wacky tobacco, you, you, you can do it right smack in the middle of Chicago or, or New York or anywhere or, you know, in a more rural setting. It's the idea of being more dependent on yourself. That creates stability for you, creates stability for your community. And we've gone a long ways away from that. The, the entire American culture was built on that idea of being what we call self-sufficient or self-reliant, but but not in a crazy way, in a way of creating economic stability for you and yours. Yeah, there are a lot of folks who have, have started to look to a different source for sustenance rather than their own willingness to work, their own ingenuity. And, and that source, of course, is Uncle Sam or or whatever their government is. And and you know what? It's pretty tough to, to combat that mindset when Uncle Sam is handing out check after check after check with their name on it. That's a pretty attractive thing. I mean, you have a sizable portion of the labor force that finds it's more profitable to sit home and collect checks than to go out and look for a job. Well, and of course, we're seeing that today, right? Um, employers are having hard, you know, harder and harder time finding good quality employees. So, um, yeah, that's that's one of the things that we're, we're trying to accomplish. And when I expo- when we expose these kids to these ideas, which are very simple and basic, their eyes light up. They, they just had no idea that you could go do some of the stuff yourself, even in your own backyard. It's it's a mentality, right? It's not so much a system as it is a mentality of how do you approach life. And and we're finding that creates not only you know some strength and self sufficiency, but it also creates serious self confidence. Oh, absolutely. And there's there's an added benefit, and this is one of the things that uh, really makes it resonate with me. I'm kind of a fan of freedom. I don't want somebody putting a saddle on me and then sitting astride me, hitting me with a riding crop and telling me, go here, do that, you know, pick that up, you know. Um, some people prefer to be told what to do. Um, I'm not one of those people looking for that. I, I feel like I have a personal mission, something that I'm supposed to do and I'm supposed to figure out, and with God's help, I'm going to accomplish it. This is the kind of education that helps unlock not only that uh, the understanding of how to do it, but how to how to drill down and get to that sense of purpose that's that's individual to each unique. It's unique to each individual person, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, and I, I don't know what order we want to go in here, but I would like to hit each one of these areas that I talked about because the way we're approaching it is very uh, it's it's you know revolutionary for our time, but it, you know it's just how everybody did it five generations ago. Okay, um, let's let's pick when, up in the next segment because we're, we're about 30 okay. seconds from our break. Before we go there, though, I want to make sure people know where they can access you and your school and get more information for themselves. Where would you send them? MonticelloCollege.org. MonticelloCollege.org. Okay, it's it's really easy to find, and I have a link in the show notes. If anybody you know really is feeling lazy and like, well, I'll just go to the show notes. You click there, I'll send you right to them. We are talking with Dr. Shannon Brooks. We will be back just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am talking with Dr. Shannon Brooks. He is the founder and president of Monticello College. Now, I say Monticello, but uh, you you get the idea. It is... uh, it's a wonderful liberal arts school that uh, only a few very fortunate people have heard about and even a few fortunate people have attended. And I'm here to tell you this is something that's a game changer for the times that we live in because this is about becoming the best version of yourself. Shannon, you mentioned before we, we went to break, it starts with education. And, and let's, let's sure. pick it up there and run with it. Yeah, so, so we do um, our version of liberal arts is what we call library education which is which is liberal arts, but it's 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 got a, a flavor of manual arts in it and, and and a number of other things. But the idea here is is to engage in a new economy. You've got to be able to understand the past. You've got to know how to interface with the future and the present. And so we focus heavily on on education from that perspective. Our students can read Hebrew, Latin, and Greek when they graduate, um, and they've got a whole host of skill sets. We'll get into that a little bit more. Another thing you've got to have, what we have found is that if you factor in housing, food, and energy, that's somewhere for some people as high as 75% of your monthly outgo. So we said, all right, if we can tackle those three and do it different than everybody else is doing it right now, then our students can live the same standard of living that the average American's living on 25% of what everybody else is doing it on. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, housing. You've got to be able to create a housing situation that has no debt attached to it and preferably no payments attached to it. And there's a number of ways we do that. We help them get get into raw land specifically or some places that have have housing on it already. We teach them a number of different construction methods. So uh, regular stick build, straw bale, cob, compressed earth block, you name it. Um, And how to do this in phases. You build a portion of your house live in that and you build the next portion. It's over time and it's, it's not, not the complete thing. You walk in and, you know, chandeliers all of a sudden, but it is certainly a way to have uh, a lot less of an economic crunch on you. Um, how's our food rather food is another major, major component of the monthly expenses. And our students grow their own food here on campus. After four years of growing your own food, everything from plants uh, to, to animals, um, uh, storage, harvesting, you know, uh, canning and, and, and dehydration, all, all of that stuff. Um, they, they have a pretty good handle on that by the time they leave. Um, so those are the t- two of the major. The third one is energy. Um, you know, the average person in America is somewhere between 150 and $500 a month on energy alone. Um, we teach them how to be off grid. We show them how to live with with uh, with with wood, or how to insulate your houses so well that you don't have to have much energy. Again, that's another area that you can really decrease. And then, of course, all of this is built around the idea that you're creating your own business. Now, that can be a lot of different areas. Uh, we have kids that want to go into homesteading. We have we have uh, uh, students that want to be novelists. Um, no matter what you do for a living, you have to have food, you have to have a house, you have to have energy. And if we can help you with start a business and do it on three quarters less than what everybody else is doing it on, you're going to be able to engage the new economy. Given some of the things that we're seeing right now, particularly in terms of, uh, of inflation, as well as uh, you know, other monetary policy concerns, you can see where something like this would, would be very helpful. Anybody who's been to the, to the, well, okay, anybody who's shopped for a house recently, 
especially right. in the Intermountain West. They know what sticker shock is. You're starting to see it now when you go to Costco. Um, everything is starting to cost more. You need to understand why that's happening and, and understand you don't have to you know, go out there and become a multi-multi-millionaire in order to, to have a very he- healthy and fulfilling life if you know how to do these things for yourself. And I love the fact, Shannon, you were saying what you talk about and what you teach these, these young people is debt-free it's right. debt-free living as opposed to, yeah, just borrow it now, worry about how to pay for it later. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, Julie and I, uh, because we really want to pound this home, we're living right now in a tiny house we built last year um, on campus. So we can show students that a couple can live in 450 square feet easily. Uh, you know, in my little town here, uh, there's a road called Uranium Drive. And this was because back in the day, um, a lot of uranium was actually processed here in Monticello. Uh, the average house size down there um, is about a thousand square feet, and these are homes of of six and eight and ten kids. So, this idea of having to have three thousand square feet for a family of four is, is is pretty ridiculous. But that's what we've gotten to. And it, of course, if Grandpa has it, and Grandma and Grandma and Grandpa have it, and Mom and Dad have it, twenty somethings think they have to have it, and the truth is, they don't. Yeah, and and things are are shifting around us, and just just because things have been this way for you know as long as most of us can remember, doesn't mean that it's written in, that it's written in stone, and it's going to stay that way indefinitely. So right. it's it's good right. to be able to learn to think creatively and outside the box, and who knows, maybe think innovatively in ways that will change things for the better. Maybe this becomes the new standard or the new norm. Well, that, it's going to be the new norm for, for our our kids, our, our students, our graduates. Um, you know, this is just one step beyond the whole van living and, and you know, living on a sailboat, uh, which, you know, those people, it's great, it's fun, but they always tend to, after five or ten years of doing that, they end up getting, you know, something on solid ground again um, that, that doesn't move. Uh, and we're just kind of beating them to, to the punch here. But we're, we're pretty excited about this. We have a number of students that are about to graduate that are excited about going out and trying this. Um, and we're going to do everything in our power to 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 make it possible for them. Shannon, talk to me about uh, the education aspect, because I I know some people equate education with, well, that's, you know, getting the skills to go get a job and, you know, be a productive member of the workforce. The kind of education you're talking about, library education, uh, being steeped in the classics, explain how that helps a person in this modern day and age do better at whatever it is they're doing. Yeah, and and probably the best way for me to do that is just tell the little story of Ed Shores. Um, t- some 15 years ago or so, Ed Shores started a program in New York City for, for inner city people. He wanted to see if an educational loan would take people who were you know, on welfare, doing drugs, that kind of thing, if that could change and have an impact on them. He found after a year of working with these folks, all they were doing is reading and writing and discussing. That was it. Um, 90% of the kids that went through that program that one year went off to college the next year. They, they were able to see that there was a much greater world. Um, and, and, you know, and, and you say, well, how could you do that? You're studying people from ancient Greece and Rome. Well, go try it because it works. And, um, and that's what happens here. So by, by taking this kind of educational approach and not focusing on income, not focusing on a job, but focusing on building yourself to be the best liberal artist you can be, 
it changes the world. It, it, it changes people's lives and you kind of have to experience it. If you want to come on down, spend a couple days with us and we'll show you how it works. Seeing is definitely believing. And, and it's a, it's a beautiful campus. It's a beautiful little corner of, of uh, Utah down near the four corners area. I want to throw one more loaded question at you though, Shannon. And again, this is for the sake of people who haven't really been exposed to this. And so we're probably thinking to themselves, okay, reading things that were written by people, you know, a couple thousand years ago, how could they possibly teach me anything that I couldn't learn better today? How do you answer a person who questions the value of those classics? Yeah, I go right to the Declaration of Independence, um, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. When the founders said pursuit of happiness, they meant eudaimonia. And when Aristotle said eudaimonia, um, he meant do the thing for which you were created. Become the most that you can be. That is true living. That is true happiness. And, of course, it got translated into life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. But the founders knew. They had read Aristotle in the original Greek. They knew that they were talking about eudaimonia, not, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's not what we're talking about. And this sense of eudaimonia really causes you to stop, analyze your life, and decide what are we you know, what am I engaged in? Is, is, it, is it money I'm chasing? Is it happiness I'm chasing? Is it, is it surface I'm chasing? And it really causes these kids to, to sit back and think about this. And this may be the first time that one, anyone's ever mentioned this to them. And it, it's very impactful. No, I, I can only look at the, the impact it's had on my own life. And yeah, there was a time when, you know, my my life was spent trying to climb that career ladder. I, well, if I can get this title, if I can get this high of a pay range, you know, then I know that I've succeeded. And what happened was I was exposed to this, this type of education. And instead, I, I learned impact is where I want to put my focus. And so everything that I do, you know, from, from the time I get up till the time I go to bed is focused on how can I use whatever influence I have wisely. That doesn't mean I'm taking over the world and it doesn't mean that I ever will. But wherever I am, the world hopefully is going to be a better place because I've learned how to use that influence to, to great effect for, for whomever yep. it is going to serve. And, and, and you can take that mentality, Brian, and you can provide for your family with that mentality. You actually can and you can do it without going into debt. And that's the key points that, we, that people have to understand. Okay, MonticelloCollege.org. There is a link in the show notes at the com. Please check it out. Dr. Shannon Brooks, thank you so much. Great to catch up with you, my friend. All right, Brian. Thanks again. We'll, we'll see you soon. This is The Brian Hyde Show.